Thessalonians chapter 2. I've many times in, in filling in for pastor, I have opened up with a, a near apology because, you know, I'm, I'm not a professional at this and sometimes you sit there in the afternoon, prepare for this and you think, does God really want me to go down this route? Am I supposed to touch on this? And you really can only fall back on that you... You study, you read the word, and you have to trust that where you're going, you're somewhat led by the Lord, hopefully. Uh, I don't want to scare anybody, but the title, or at least what we're going to be the subject, is the word apostasy. I was uh, one or two years old when my mother got saved. And from that point on, for the next five, six, seven years, we visited every church in three counties. My mom was hungry. She was going to find some place where she could raise her kids in the admonition of the Lord. She was not going to go somewhere just because her, she had married into some Lutherans. Wrong with being Lutheran? There was, we were not going to go somewhere just because her, her parents, who never had darkened the door of a church, said she shouldn't go to a certain place. Mom, on her own, was going to find a place where she thought the Lord wanted her to raise her kids. So because of that, I got to experience everything. I was inside of every of these small town churches. And the reason I, I, I throw that out there is back then, 30, 40 years ago now, there was nothing in any of those churches that was so desperately wrong that I could point back to and say, boy, that was a weird place. That church was really apostate. That church was some place that I would be scared to take my kids not sure that we can say that today. Think what's happened in the last 40 years, what churches are now from the pulpit have reversed a position on, have accepted, have opened the door and brought in and now said this is, this is, uh, this is normal, this is something that we're now going to celebrate even if, you know, if we take a vote on it and say that we, we all think this is okay even though we can't find anything in the Bible that may point to our acceptance of that. And so that, the, the thing about history, I, I like history. And one thing history does is it gives you a perspective. You see where something started, where it may have turned a left or a right turn down the wrong road, and where it tends to end up. History gives us some reference point of where we've been and a direction that if we continue down this path, where we'll end up. Second Timothy 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3. This whole chapter is talking about the coming of the Lord, and that's not my subject. We're, we're not necessarily going down that road, but this introduces a certain word in the New Testament. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day, and the day he's talking about is the day of the Lord, when Jesus returns. For that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. Then it goes on to talk about a man of sin being revealed, the son of perdition. And those are interesting topics, but we're not going there. It says that before Jesus comes back, and before that would, we, we would describe what's at the end of verse 3, the Antichrist, it's talking about first that there would come a falling away. I'm no Greek scholar, but if you do go to a Greek, what's the word, the... Uh, concordance, it does have the word for that phrase, falling away, apostasia, I'm not sure exactly how the Greeks may say it, but it's where we in English get our word apostasy. If you look it up, that definition in a concordance, it, it uses the word divorcement and the word truth. It says, it describes, it implies that you are at one time walking down the correct path, that you are on the road of truth. But apostasy occurs when you don't just slip and take a step or two off that road, but you make a turn and you get as far enough off that road that you can't see where you came back from. And it's very likely you don't even know that you've gotten off the road to truth. There is a, a certain implication in the definitions that apostasy means in a lot of ways that a person is blinded. You, you don't even realize you've taken a certain route 
that you are now no longer on the route that you used to be, that you started out to be, that your first initial intentions resided on. Apostasy. It's a divorcement, a separation from truth. The other thing that that implies, and let's go to, the, let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now there's a reason we can go to so many verses or uh, different books in the New Testament. Let's stop for a second and think about what is the New Testament. It's a collection, mostly after the Gospels, of letters that Paul wrote or Peter wrote or maybe Jude wrote or the Apostle John wrote. And who were they writing to? They were writing to places that they had started a church. They're making uh, travels. They're heading other places. They hear about something that was maybe taking place, being taught in the church that they planted, and they're writing many times a letter to correct what's going on back there. Or maybe they're writing a greetings and wondering what is going by, back on back there. Tell me about it. And that's what a good an apostle, a pastor does. He's a shepherd. He's looking out for the sheep. And so many in all of these epistles, they, most all of them begin with an address to some wrong teaching or some wrong discernment or maybe even a conflict that is going on in the members and they're trying to make peace. They're trying to get their attention focused back down the right road, the road of truth. So it's all over in these epistles. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times... This is just like the previous verse we read in Thessalonians. It was talking about the end times or latter times. That in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. There's a good few phrases for some guests that are here tonight. These guys talk doctrines of devils. Anyway, in, verse, in the first verse, it says that some shall depart from the faith. Now that also implies if you depart from something that you initially, first of all, have to be apart or conjoined. You have to be a part of something. And this says that in the end times, the latter times, some shall depart from the faith. Now everybody knows that in all times, all times, throughout all church history, even before what we would call church history of Jesus moving forward, go back into the ancient times with ancient Israel, there was always people falling away from the Lord the entire nation. God would raise up a prophet. He would raise up a deliverer to bring them back. So I'm not trying to say that, hey, look at what is happening. This means that on God's calendar, we have to be right at this spot. We might be, but that's not my point. It just, uh, it brought us here to see that in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith. This happens throughout all ages, at all times. But this word apostasy, again, as it says here, you depart from it. That means that you start out walking down the right path. One thing I love about Pastor is his knowledge of church history. He can talk about any denomination you can possibly name. and Talk about who founded it, what that person believed, why they believed it, where their experience came from, how long they walked down that road until other ideas were introduced, and it's a, it's a good history lesson. Because today, there are churches that are doing things that their founders would find inconceivable. Inconceivable. The, there's a good analogy that the founding fathers, I think it was Samuel Adams, he said something after the American Revolution that somebody had made a, a proposal to go take the nation a certain path that he thought was crazy. And he said that had we known of the thought of taking it down that, and it was concerning an unchristian belief. Had we known that this generation would want to take the country down this unchristian path, we would have strangled the revolution in its cradle. Meaning, he said, we would have never fought and bled and had some of us die to create something that would go down the wrong path. And because of that, there is, there is a good argument to be made for always Repairing foundations. It's a very good thing for churches, and especially in a Bible study setting. You come together to study the Bible. You open up to see where are we walking with God and where might we be missing it. 
in reading God's Word, this is probably what separates, really, those of us that attend this Bible study, is we happen to believe that God didn't make any error, that He meant everything that He said here, that everything that is written is going to, that is in the future is going to come to pass. We believe that, and that's really the starting point. Let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Okay, that was a lot of general. 2 Timothy 3 has several verses that describe adjectives and adverbs of apostate beliefs. Things that have gotten off the rails. Chapter 3 of 2 Timothy and verse 1. Here again it says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. And for the next few verses it gives us descriptions. For men or mankind shall be lovers of them own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers. It continues through verse 3 through verse 4, and look at verse 5. This it now puts a somewhat of a summary on everything that it just mentioned. It says, Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. So he describes these characteristics of apostate people, groups, ideas, things that are no longer walking the path of truth. And he says that it has a form of godliness. A form. Form inherently describes an outer appearance. Steve makes pottery out of clay, and if you just look on the outside, and especially someone who's ignorant like myself of the inner workings of that, the outer shell of that thing really doesn't tell me, because I didn't put it together, it wasn't there when it was mixed, it doesn't tell me what's on the inside. I don't even know what it, what it looks like. It might even be a different color on the inside. A form of godliness. The form describes an outer appearance. You can see the form of somebody up against the, the, the setting sun and see their silhouette. That's the form. You, you may even be able to recognize who that person is, but you probably can't tell what color clothing they're wearing. You probably can't tell a lot of things about what's maybe even the health of the person. But what's on the inside is not described by the form of godliness. This just says that the, the, the things that come in the last days that are going to be apostate, it'll have a form of godliness. It will look on the outside very similar to what is godliness. Now we're in very general terms. We're going to narrow it down and get a little more specific, but think in general terms, how often Jesus told his disciples when they would ask him, tell us about what it's going to be like in your second coming. He almost always. He almost always included the phrase and started off with, be not deceived. Be not deceived. He always warned them that at that time it would be easy to think something is what it's not. Having a form of godliness, comma, but denying the power thereof. This is very, very important part of Christianity. Denying the power thereof. Uh, this, wor- this, this, this word, power, jumps out at me a lot. It, it, it's a little bit personal. You know, I went, went to a Christian college, and our floor, which you would maybe call a... What do people call it? Secular college is what's it called? A fraternity. We didn't call it that. I don't think you're allowed to call it that. But our 30 guys on our floor, we called, we came up with the name dunamis. That's the Greek word for power in the Bible. The power, the dunamis in the gospel is when the spirit comes into a person's life, it regenerates them, it makes them totally new. It's the power of God. This verse says, that the apostate idea, it will have a form of godliness. It may even look great on the outside, but it will deny the power thereof. Let's go to Romans chapter 1. Romans, right after the Acts. Romans chapter 1. 
and verse 16. Romans 1, 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Now those of you who are used to me, you, you know we're going to go back and, and tear these words apart here. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it. What does it refer to? I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it. What is the power of God? According to that verse, what phrase, what word, what idea? The gospel of Christ. You could substitute. In mathematics, we do this all the time. You can substitute if x equals y. Wherever you find y, you can remove y and put an x in there. Same thing here. It. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it. For the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. What we came from was that something might have a form of godliness, but it would deny the power thereof. It would deny the power. This verse, and if we keep a finger here, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We, I like to lay foundations. We want to make sure that we really do believe what we found. Can we trust this? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 tells us the same thing. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it, the preaching of the cross, the preaching of the cross is the power of God. Those two verses, they're, they're sister verses, they're saying the same thing. That God did not put power in running so fast or being so strong or being so smart as the ability to get to him. You can't get, him, get to God that way. There's only one way, and that's believing through our heart. The Bible tells us if we confess with our mouth, believe with our heart that he raised Christ from the dead, then we're saved. I mean, think of that. That's how easy God made it. He didn't make it that Steve would get there before me because he's stronger than me. It's what you believe in your heart. The gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So what is the gospel? We like definitions. What is the gospel? The gospel is that great, big, huge story that starts in Genesis 1, verse 1, and it goes all the way to the end of Revelation that tells the story God sending his son into the earth to pay the penalty for mankind so that he could be redeemed. That story starts out with Adam and Eve. They don't need any redemption. They're holy. They are perfect. But they sin. And because of sin, sin comes into the world. It says that God already had a plan. At the end of the Bible, Revelation 13.8 tells us that from the very foundations of the earth, Jesus was the lamb slain. That God had the idea, the plan, for his son to shed his blood. And that blood is what cleanses. It's what our Bible teaches us. The whole Old Testament, that's why it's so bloody. You're always sacrificing animals back there. Because God was showing mankind, this is how I deal with sin. So that when you get to the New Testament, you can recognize Jesus, just like John the Baptist. He points to Jesus and says, there goes the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist, a good Jewish boy, knew his Old Testament. And he didn't call him, there goes my cousin. And he didn't say, there goes the guy that walked on water. He called him the Lamb of God. He called him a lamb. He's, that's the metaphor, that's the picture you get from the Old Testament. He is going to die for our sins. I'm not saying John the Baptist knew he was going to the cross. I'm not saying whether God put those words in his mouth or whatever. He recognized he was going to be God's sacrifice for us. Now that's the story of the gospel. That God, in his infinite love and his mercy, he sent his son into this earth to pay the penalty you, we, you and I just couldn't take care of. Because you and I, we're born with sin. So this now gets to the nitty gritty of a few things. What is that gospel? How does God get his son into this earth? Does he just take his pixie dust and his magic wand and say, poof, 
Jesus is now on the earth. He does not do that. Galatians tells us that through the, through the workings of time that God sent his son, born of a woman, under the law. Is what that means. That God legally, he brought Jesus into this earth. Just like we all get here through a woman. Everybody that's ever been on this earth, except for Adam and Eve. Everybody has come through the birth canal. God made it that way. And when it was time to get his son in here, he did the same thing. He brought him under the same natural laws that you and I did, so that when he lived the sinless life on this earth, it was all legal. He did what you and I couldn't do. But then he just didn't live a sinless life and then just be transported to heaven. Where did he do? He walked, he worked his way to Calvary to make sure that he would get nailed, get beaten, get flogged so that the blood would be shed. Because that's what the Old Testament teaches us is that there can be no remission of sin. There can be no cleansing without blood. It's costly. It's precious. And that's the story. That's the story of the gospel. Jesus had to come here through a virgin birth. He had prophesied it. Now, you may think, John, you're a long ways from where you started talking about apostasy. Well, these verses told us that apostasy would look like something, and it would deny the power. It would deny the power of the gospel. See, you have churches. You have a lot of places that open on Sundays, maybe in a midweek Bible study, that don't believe anymore that really he was born of a virgin. <laughs> People laugh at us. We can't, we can't say that. I mean, the whole world will think we're crazy in here if we start saying that. There's a lot of churches that are saying that. That Jesus, he was just a philosopher. He was a lot like... Uh, Socrates, he was a lot like any of these people that, that are known for having great teachings. Jesus was not a philosopher. He did not come to philosophize. He came to point to truth. To become the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the earth. And if a church doctrine becomes, if they stray so far from the original obvious truth that God got his son here through a virgin birth. If they're straying so far away as to be ashamed of that, there's a problem. Next thing, after Jesus is born into this earth in a miraculous way, it's all miracles. Remember the angel coming to Mary and telling her, don't worry about it. You are pregnant. But it's from the Holy Spirit. It's a miracle. She believes it. The angels go and tell her cousin, Elizabeth, that John the Baptist is inside of you. Even though you're old and you guys can't have kids, he's coming. The star directs the wise men through countries when there weren't atlases and there weren't iPhones. There was no way to get there. God directed them through sand storms, through oceans of deserts to find him. When he was born, the angels appear and the shepherds are out there and they start singing and they go throughout the whole country telling people. That's a miracle. The angels show up and tell them that. The angels warn Joseph, you better take him and your family go to Egypt because Herod is going to try to kill every kid two years and younger. While they're in Egypt, Herod dies and the angel comes back to Joseph and warns him there. You can come back to Israel. It's safe now. Those that sought the young boy's life are dead. It's one miracle after another. This is the story of the gospel. See, with all these miracles in that whole story, this is why God, when someone hears it and believes it, and they believe it, what does God do? People, the whole heaven, a bell rings. And we got another one. They believe what I told them, and the Bible teaches us that what? That now God looks at that person who believes as righteous. Think of that. All the filth that they were born into from their parents, and their great-grandparents going all the way back to Adam, all the filth that this world has in the initial stain of just being a human, and even if they've done terrible things personally themselves, it's cleansed, 
perfectly because they heard God's story and they believed it. The Bible teaches us that God imputes righteousness. They are now a child of the king. And if they continue walking with him, they're coming to heaven to live with him forever. What is apostasy? Apostasy is starting on that road. But over time, through neglect, the Bible talks about a hardening of the heart. It talks about having a searing of your mind, of your conscience. That you can sin against God, that you can transgress His law over and over, that after a while that even your conscience doesn't bother you anymore, and that's not a good thing. Never a good thing if you do wrong, and you don't even feel bad about it, ask a parent of any young child. It is not good if that child is going to go against what you have told them, and it doesn't bother them in the least. Parent, you have trouble. If your words don't mean something to that kid, and there isn't a, a certain a blushing a, when, he, when that, per, that child is caught in the act, and if there isn't a repentant, a remorseful attitude, it better be put into them maybe with a, Warming up of the flesh, because if you don't, see that it's, the conscience is lacking. We've read these verses that said it would have a form of godliness, but it would deny the power thereof. Let's go to John chapter 17, and maybe Jesus talks about this same thing. John chapter 17. <clears throat> and the first few verses here, and we're going to pick apart these words and these phrases because, you know, God, he, this is how he has to communicate to us. He chose to write this in the book. The Chinese have to get it this way. The Manchurians, the Russians, the Algerians, the South Koreans, all the people that have ever lived on the earth. God wrote a book to read. So he tells a story so that every single culture can understand it this way. We've got to pull these words apart. John 17, verse 1. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. And what he's talking about, being glorified, is it's getting close to time where he has to go be crucified. And he's going to, as he said early in the Gospel of John, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. Lifted up, those crosses hung up in the air. The Romans put them way up there so that everybody could see them. That was a sign that you go against the Romans and this is what happens to you. It was meant as a deterrent that nobody would challenge the Romans, even if you were strong. They wanted people to be embarrassed, humiliated, in terror of Roman law. Verse 2, as thou hast given him power over all flesh. Jesus is saying that, God, you have given me all power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. So Jesus is speaking of all the people that are believing on him. That's what he means by that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Now, verse 3 expands on the phrase, eternal life. And this is life eternal. So, what comes next is the definition of eternal life. That they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. There is so much in that verse. Jesus de defined eternal life as this, that they, talking about just any general human being, might know. That means knowledge. You have to understand something. That you might know the, the one God out of 400. Not saying that at all. That they might know the, the only true God. I have a, a pretty good friend I went to high school with that told me that the church that he goes to now, they went out and he lives in a, in a large city in the Midwest, several million people, and they did a homeless and a, a, a feed the hungry outreach. 
which obviously those are great things. But after querying him, questioning him, and probing a little bit, ask, do you, do you tell these people that they need Jesus? And of course not. He said they might be Muslim, they might be Buddhist, or who knows what they might be. We don't want to offend them. They, they can get to heaven any way they want. We're just there to you know, meet their needs. And th- this is a harsh thing to say, but, but it does happen to be the truth. That type of thinking is only going to make sure somebody gets to hell with a full belly. This verse, Jesus says that eternal life is that you must believe that there's only one God out there. Only one true God. Now the Bible has the phrase gods. And what he's most in the Old Testament, he would talk about the Israelites having gods. Well, that's when they made a calf. That thing wasn't really a god. It's just a, it's a human imagination, a human construction. Gods, things that man makes up. But there really is, if we want to talk about an actual spirit, an actual being, an actual force, there's nothing out there except God of the Bible. That's what Jesus is saying right here. And that, in 2016, is controversial. Not controversial at, at the courthouse. Not controversial at the school board meeting. It's not controversial at maybe two lawyers chatting over something. It's controversial in churches to tell people that there's only one true God out there. There's more. Jesus said, eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God, comma, and who else? Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. That's the part of the gospel. That's the story that this One true God, the Father, what did he do? He didn't wave a magic wand. He sent his Son to the earth. And that whole story of being born through Mary, of of living a sinless life, of being crucified, put on a cross to pay for our sins, and to be raised from the dead. Paul says, we don't believe in the resurrection. Our faith is in vain. If Jesus didn't come out of that tomb, we're in big trouble. This gospel that is the power of God, you are required to believe all of that story, what the Bible teaches about it. God sent his son, came to this earth through these miracles. He performed these miracles on the earth to prove who he was. And then everybody, and I, I, I love that, there were so many times in the gospels where people came and told Jesus, and they didn't like him, the religious leaders, they said, tell us by what authority you do these things. How, how, how do you just teach our people the things you're doing? Give us a sign that you are who you say you are. And what was Jesus' response? He said, there'll be no sign given you. There will be no sign given you except the sign of Jonah, who spent three days in the whale's belly, and he came out. And he said, I'll be just like that. The Son of Man will spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then I'll be back. That's the proof. Anybody. Anybody can claim to be anything. But there's no human being that can foretell and predict I'm going in the grave and three days later I'll be back. The resurrection was the proof, the supernatural proof that he was who he said he was. There's also tons of other proof, just the fact how he got here. The Bible predicted 700 years in advance he'd be born of a virgin. Predicted 3,000 years in advance, about, about 1,500 years in advance where he would, or when he would be born. Micah, 400 years early, tells us he's going to be born in Bethlehem. All these things, miracles. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. What is the power of God? Believing this amazing miraculous story of the gospel. God getting his son here to pay the penalty for us. He also told us he's coming back again. Now, the reason we're going through all of this again is to point out how there are a lot of churches, there are a lot of places they don't believe hardly any of this. What they believe is that Jesus was a very good teacher 
He's, he's called a teacher, a philosopher. He did teach. That doesn't mean he was just a teacher. He was the Son of God. He was completely human, and yet at the same time, completely divine. We, I think I got a scripture for that. We, don't we should. Let's go to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy, chapter 3. I did see somebody bring tomatoes in. I don't know if those are for throwing. Just nothing but motivation. Motivation to do your job, be prepared. 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to verse 7. This is, these are the verses we read earlier that described what things would look like at the end times when apostasy would be taking hold. And look at verse 7. The people would be ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Let's think about that. We can put those words together. Ever learning. That means they, they are taking in information. They're ever learning, but they're never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. The knowledge of the truth. That is speaking of the basics, the building blocks. You see, I, I will admit, I love learning things new. I love learning and finding out new things in the Bible that I never knew were there. It is inspiring. You get goosebumps sometimes. But it's dangerous to go looking for new things if we haven't mastered the basic building blocks. Jesus spoke about building your house upon a rock that it would withstand a beating storm. And he compared that to somebody who built their house on the sand that was always shifting and it, what he's talking about, of course, is foundation. Our spiritual foundation has got to be rock solid in the basics of the gospel, That's that gospel story. And that's why when we learn about things in the Old Testament, those aren't just stories to occupy kids' time for an hour in there so they stay out of our hair. They learn these stories so that we can teach them. Noah's Ark. That's not just a story so we can have fuzzy stuffed animals in a Sunday school room. There's nothing wrong with that, but Noah's Ark has its, its benefits, its applications. The, the, the New Testament points back to Noah's Ark where he got all of life inside that one vessel and it raised above the raging storm below and the earth was cleansed, cleansed of the filth. The Bible speaks, and it points back to that, Then the New Testament says that's like baptism. That when you go under the water and you come out, you have left behind you all of the filth of your past. Same thing with the Israelites crossing the Red Sea and the Egyptians going in after them. And the Red Sea comes over and it destroys the Egyptians. And the Bible says in Exodus, the Israelites turn back and they look and see on every wave the Egyptians are washing up dead on the seashore. It's a picture of baptism. Those Israelites came out of bondage, slavery. God was, in effect, cleansing them as they moved into the wilderness, heading toward promised land. See, all of those stories. And I, I, I use the word story, but they're, they're facts. You know, we're, we're talking about what churches don't believe. There are tons, people. There are scads of churches that don't want to talk about Jonah really being swallowed by a fish. That, that's embarrassing. I don't want people to think we believe that. I, I don't want people to think that we really believe that, that Noah actually got in a boat. I mean, that's just kind of a story to describe something, right? You ask him, well, do you believe in Jesus? Well, sure we believe in Jesus. <laughs> that other stuff. Jesus believed in that other stuff. Jesus is the one that told the Pharisees, I'll be gone, and just like Jonah was three days in the whale's belly, I'll be three days in the heart of the earth. Jesus told his disciples that the coming of the Son of the Man, the coming of the Son of Man will be like Noah in his days. And he went on to describe it, saying that they ate and they drank until the flood came and swept them away. Jesus believed in Noah and his story. 
Jesus believed in Joshua marching around Jericho and the story of Jonah. And yet, have churches in America today that are becoming proud of the fact that they don't believe in those crazy stories. So they describe Jesus as a teacher. There's never any focus on really how did Jesus get here. This remarkable miracle that he came from a virgin. They don't even want to be associated with that. I can, if, you, if you love truth, if you respect an accurate description at all, how do we not call that apostate? How do we not call that one at one time walking down the path of truth but being divorced from it? Walking away from it to getting to the point we don't even want to be identified with those stories, those beliefs. That's why if a church says that we are a New Testament church and we only read verses from the New Testament, you really don't even know where Jesus came from. Why he even came. If you don't have the story of Adam and Eve, why is Jesus coming? If you don't have the Old Testament prophecies predicting a Savior, a Messiah coming, what sense does it make to read about a promised person in the New Testament arriving on the scene? It's the Old Testament that makes us even look for Jesus. We have churches all over the country that do this. Yes, there are things in the Old Testament that we don't do anymore. Absolutely, and why not? Because Jesus fulfilled those requirements. There are things in Leviticus and Exodus that will put you to sleep every night. Try to read those. Go home tonight, and I dare you to read two chapters. If you can get through two, you're doing it. Because most people are sawing logs after four verses. And in those verses... There are, there are some wonderful things, but in some of those verses, it's because they are ceremonial laws. Talking, talk about how women should wash themselves a certain time every month. There are ceremonial laws about all kinds of things that no longer apply to us because the New Testament teaches us Jesus fulfilled the requirements of those sacrificial laws. It's the reason Darren and I don't go buy a sheep every Sunday to sacrifice for our sins anymore. Because the New Testament tells us that would be an abomination. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. If we're trying to do, uh, make something better than that, we've got problems. We accept what he's done. We don't even, it's nice to know about those sacrificial systems because we can then recognize what Jesus did. He was a mere image of that Old Testament. That's why he was crucified the way that he was, the way he was tortured the way that he was, because that's what they did to the lamb, to the goat in the Old Testament. But as far as living under that Old Testament law, there's liberty. That law has been, it has been fulfilled. All the requirements have been met. And that's why the New Testament speaks of living in Christ, through Christ, because in Him, where He took care of the requirements of that law, we're no longer responsible for that. We're no longer responsible. That. Let's go to, let's see, first, first Timothy chapter 2. We're close to this one. First Timothy chapter 2, and then we'll start winding this down. First Timothy chapter 2, and look at verse 4. This again is very similar to what we've read in other places. It says, it's talking about our the God, our Savior, in the previous verse, and in verse 4, who will have all men to be saved. And that word will means to his, his desire, his intention. It is my will that my children grow up in such and such a way. That's what this word will means here, that God wants all men to be saved. Of course, that doesn't mean we're not universalists. It doesn't mean people are just born into the world and they're automatically going to heaven. No, they have to make the choice. They have to hear the gospel. They have to believe it. Confess Jesus with their mouth and they're going. Who will have all men to be saved and come unto the knowledge of the truth. And here is the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man 
the man, Christ Jesus. So verse 5 gives us a definition of what the knowledge of the truth is. Our goal as Christians is to get people to understand that there is one God. That there is one mediator between God and men. And that person is the man, Jesus Christ. I hope that makes a little bit more sense or it's more meaningful than it was 45 minutes ago. Because the, the true church, some, a, a, a group of believers, somebody that is sticking to the, the road of truth that God started his church on, we must believe this. There are things we can disagree with. We can't. And we can all still go to heaven. We can all still be great friends. But there are some things that we will not be in fellowship unless we are in agreement over some basic building blocks. There is one God out there. And unfortunately, 10 years ago, a, a president that I voted for came out and said that the Christians and the Muslims all worship the same God. Very unfortunate. Very unfortunate to say that. We don't. We're not trying to start anything. But if, if we're going to stick to the truth, we, there has to be a differentiated, uh, there has to be a line drawn. There is one God and there is one mediator. The word mediator is a legal word. It's somebody who takes information from one person or party and goes to another and they act as the go-between. And it uses that to describe Jesus. And that's why Jesus says in John that no man goes to the Father but by me. He's very exclusive. There's a lot of churches that wouldn't like Jesus saying that. A lot of churches that love the word inclusive. Well, in this context, Jesus is very exclusive. He's saying, I'm it. This is the only way to get to the Father. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man gets to the Father but by me. Wow, that, it, it's amazing. I'd have never thought when I was a three-year-old kid going from church to church with my mother, that what I just described would cause arguments in churches. That it would maybe even cause somebody to throw a book at someone. We have that nowadays in our church. And I talk to my wife a lot of times with late-night discussions when we finally get all these kids put to bed, that we have a lot of churches in America that are, are breaking up, that are splitting. They're... they're uh, whatever that word is. After a while, I told her, I, I am encouraged. I am thankful that we have church splits. Just think if these ideas were introduced and everybody went along with it. Thank God there are some people, and in many cases the majority, that's willing to break away and say, no, we're not going to accept that. We're not going down that road. Do you know how depressed I would be if we had no church splits and this stuff was being introduced? That means everybody in there is going along with that. Hey, we got some like-minded people out there. We're not completely overwhelmed yet. Take, take some heart in that. The mediator. The whole New Testament describes that what Jesus did, it made a way for this sinful man to get back to the God that created Adam and Eve in that Garden of Eden where he came and he walked with them every day. And it describes that mediator he did such a good job he the bible tells us that one drop of his blood saves from the uttermost in our language we may say the guttermost that there's nothing that the blood of jesus can't cover it just has to be applied it has to be appropriated in a person's life and if it is any person can have perfect access to the father of glory 100%. His blood is so it is so perfect, so all-encompassing in redemption. And that's the, the story of the, of the Old Testament that also teaches us what's that, what that blood does. When the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, two weeks before they walk out free, they, they don't even, Moses is just, he's just getting there, coming out of the wilderness telling Pharaoh, you need to let my people go. Nothing's getting better. In fact, it's getting worse. Pharaoh says, now that you're here to complain, 
The people have to gather their own straw, and we're going to increase the number of bricks they've got to make. It wasn't getting better, it was getting worse. Till the death of the firstborn. You had those ten plagues in Egypt where the water was turned to blood. That was the first thing Jesus did. He went to that Canaan wedding and he turned the water to wine. Anyway, there's these ten plagues and the last one is the death of the firstborn. And when the death of the firstborn happens, the death angel goes through that night and wherever the blood of the lamb was on the doorposts of the people, the death angel passed over. Where we get the celebration of Passover. Passed over and he went to somewhere else where there was no blood and where there was no blood applied, it was horrible. Firstborn died that night. Jesus was the only begotten. He was the sacrifice. The next day when those Israelites come out of their homes, the Egyptians are begging them to leave. They hand them some of their gold and their silver and they beg Pharaoh, please get these Israelites out of here. If you don't, these ten plagues that we've had, frogs, lice, the hailstones, all these, we're going to die, every one of us. And they thrust them out. And overnight, the blood, the death of that firstborn, and they went from slaves to not just being free. God says in Psalm, I think, 78, there wasn't a feeble one among them. They had spent 400 years as slaves. Slaves do not get good health care. There would have been some that would have been maimed, some that would have lost fingers, toes, diseases that had shriveled them up, and the Bible says God healed every one of them. They marched out perfect. That is the power of the blood. And that was a lamb. What we live under is what John the Baptist pointed out, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That is Jesus Christ. Born of a virgin, so he didn't have man's sinful nature. Lived perfect. He was God, he was divine, and he voluntarily crawled up on that cross. Jesus said, no man takes my life. I lay it down, and I have power to take it back up. The blood of Jesus is so powerful that's the picture. He came out of Egypt. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for what you have included in your Bible. We thank you, Lord, for the communication that you have to us through it. We pray, Lord, that each person here would take something away from tonight that would grow inside of them to encourage and strengthen them, to embolden them in the faith with you. Lord, I pray for each person here that the angels would go before them to straighten their path that you would be with them in every single way. We pray that Pastor would have a safe trip home. In Jesus' name, amen.